everyone, and welcome to another episode of You Scared of This, the weekly podcast where we watch every episode of Nickelodeon's hit horror anthology TV show for kids from the 90s. Are you afraid of the dark? I did it. And try to determine whether or not it's still scary. I'm Eli Phillips, as always, and with me is my best friend, David Dykus. Hello, party people. Here I am in the flesh and feeling a little bit sniffly, so forgive me. A little sniffly, huh? I feel like your last three progress reports have all been bad. The reason I'm sniffly is here in Nashville, spring has come about two months early. Because it's currently about 75 degrees outside and all the trees are blooming. And mm-hmm. for future historians, it is currently the middle of February. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I saw a meme the other day that was, it was Jay-Z making an uncomfortable face. Like he was trying to be happy, but he wasn't. And it said... When you're enjoying the nice weather in February, but you know our planet is over. Yeah, that about sums it up. But hey, short sleeves. Now we can swim any day in November. I'll have to come up with a tuba uh, rendition of that song. <laughs> Don't act like you haven't already done that. <laughs> yeah, so welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is episode four of season four of Are You Afraid of the Dark that we'll be reviewing. This week, we're going to be talking about the tale of the quiet librarian this is the second normal episode after last week's the tale of the renegade virus i think calling this a normal episode is giving it a bit too much credit yeah season four is really hitting that season one and two mark of being really inconsistent huh yeah so far it's been a mixed bag yeah Season three, they hit their stride, and season four, they seem to be back to the grab bag of the first two seasons. We can talk about all of that later. Let's actually take a minute and talk a little bit more about last week's solid episode, The Renegade Virus. I want to do like a follow-up on that. There was one point I wanted to bring up. Many episodes ago, we talked about how the tale of the dream girl uh, is widely believed to have been the inspiration for a major motion picture, of course, the, the Sixth Sense, right? Yeah. Well... I believe the tale of the renegade virus was given similar treatment by Hollywood. I think it was also the basis of a major motion picture, albeit a much, much worse one. I think... Wait, are you saying worse than... Worse than The Sixth Sense. Okay, which is, you know, most movies, right? The Sixth Sense, pretty good. I think we can all agree The Sixth Sense is a pretty okay, pretty good movie. I think we can all agree that the Matrix sequels, though are not good movies. That does not mean I don't like them in some way, but I'll agree. They they have some redeeming qualities, but the point is, I'm pretty sure the tale of the renegade virus inspired The Matrix Reloaded in Revolutions. You're referring to the virus's plot to get inside of a human body so that he can wreak havoc in the human world outside of the virtual reality he was born in? That is exactly what I'm talking about. We mentioned the Matrix briefly during our our review of Renegade Virus, but it only occurred to me later that, yeah, that's basically the plot of the second and third Matrix movies, right? Agent Smith is looking for a way to escape the Matrix, he needs a human vessel, and he eventually does it by connecting his hand to a human in the virtual reality. And then, you know, escaping into the real world. I'm trying to remember the the scene where he takes over the guy's body. Like, I remember the guy he takes over, and I remember what he does afterwards. But I'm trying to remember the details of how he got into the human world. If I'm remembering this right, and I watched those movies about a year or so ago, he does his bit where he shoves his hand into another denizen of the Matrix. They turn into a smith, 
And then Smith basically answers the phone when he gets a call from uh, the humans in reality, the way they plug into and out of the Matrix. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's still... You know, that that brings up an interesting question in my mind. So you answer the phone, and that's what gets you out of the Matrix. What if I answered the phone for somebody else? That's a good question. I don't have an answer for that. How'd they put me back in my body? Anyway... I would say that's not necessarily the plot of the movie, since Neo makes fairly simple work of that dude. Uh, the plot of the movie is what happens in the Matrix, where the the virus does continue to fuck shit up. Neo has to fight two versions of Agent Smith in the Matrix movies. He has to fight human Agent Smith, who I guess blinds him? In the real world, yeah, he gets blinded by like an electrical cable or something. And then he has to fight uh, Matrix Agent Smith, who is the big bad and, like, takes over the bodies of every person ever. Yes. So, maybe it borrows from it. I would be hesitant to uh, to say that, like, they both share the same primary plot point or primary antagonist. The Wachowskis, hit us up on Twitter and let us know if you stole the plot for the second and third Matrix movies from Are You Afraid of the Dark? It does seem like something they would do, since the first movie was basically Ghost in the Shell, right? Yeah, I know they they have been accused of, like, lifting some story elements before, so. So anyway, that was just something that we had talked about off mic that I thought was a really interesting point you made, and that we should bring it up here on the show. Listeners, if you agree, disagree, have any opinion on that, uh, let us know. We'd like to hear that discussion. That's actually an interesting discussion in general, like, number of... Not number of episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark that borrow from other properties, but number of other properties that seemingly borrow from Are You Afraid of the Dark, right? Yeah. I wonder if there will be more of that, given that the people who watched Are You Afraid of the Dark as kids are now our age. Well, as we begin to talk about the tale of the Quiet Librarian, I can think of at least one movie that this episode may have borrowed from. Oh, interesting. Well, then let's get right into it. All right, let's go. The Tale of the Quiet Librarian, episode 4 of season 4 of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Directed by David Winning and written by Susan Kim, who also wrote The Tale of the Curious Camera and The Tale of the Carved Stone, so kind of a hit or miss. Well, spoiler alert, this episode is not going to improve her batting average. (laughs) She's the Chloe Brown of real human beings. Yep. Uh, This episode first aired on October 15th, 1994, and uh, as we will find out very quickly, this is a Kiki story. The first Kiki story in a little while, I believe. It is. I can't even think of what the last one was. Quicksilver was the last Kiki story. Tell the Quicksilver, which was uh, which was an okay episode. Oft maligned. Tell the Quicksilver was an episode that slightly exceeded my low expectations for it. Not a great episode, but eh, fine. I think that's fair. Uh, we'll see how Kiki can do this time when she's paired with Susan Kim. The episode starts in probably one of my favorite ways that the show can open. Yep. I don't know the guy. Oh, this is real fair. You're only 200 pounds heavier than me. With Tucker in pain. Yep. And Frank being a butthead. My favorite part of this is that Frank has Tucker in a headlock, and we don't even ever learn why, do we? I don't think we need justification for that. (laughs) It makes total sense. Frank has Tucker in a headlock, and he's just, like, occasionally flexing and, like, jerking Tucker around. Uh, 
when the rest of the Midnight Society comes up, and they're all making noise and asking what's going on, and Kiki tells them all to be quiet. She's like, everyone, be quiet. And they all get silent, and Frank is just holding a quiet Tucker, like, in his arm. And Tucker <laughs> looks up at him and is like, really? Yeah, Kiki tells them that she wants to try to achieve absolute silence, but everyone's like, oh, you can't have silence. Particularly nerdy Gary. He couldn't. Where there's life, there's sound. Gary phrases this in a really unusual way. He says, you can't have total silence where there's life. Is that true? That doesn't seem true to me. It's a stupid setup for a, an episode, but Kiki says, think of it another way. You take away sound, and you take away life. And everyone kind of, we get the usual uh, sequence of shots where all the Midnight Society members glance at each other as if to ask, what is this going to lead to? Yeah, like, they all give the side eye. Yeah, the side eye. Kiki throws that coffee creamer right on the fire and introduces the tale of the quiet librarian, which, of course, starts in a library. Get used to it. Most of this episode is going to be in a library. Which I didn't mind. It's a it's a great library. It is an awesome library. It's like three or four stories and packed full of books. It's a good setting for a spooky show, but anyway, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. This episode begins with a cute little moppet bouncing a ball. Yeah, we will call him the babiest Danny Tamborelli. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Littlest Pete. Yeah, this little red-haired, almost a toddler. I mean, he's acting like a toddler. He's probably like six or seven years old in reality. Anyway, it's a very, very young kid bouncing a little plastic ball in the library. And he loses track of his ball, it bounces away from him. And it rolls up to a, a door hidden behind a bookshelf that reads, Quiet Reading Room. Yep. And the, and the kid, I know it's not fair to make fun of a kid this young. He's not a good actor, though. <laughs> there will be a lot of that in this episode. The ball rolls underneath the door and he just goes, Rats. Rats. But no sooner has he lost his ball than the mysterious door opens and bright pink light begins to pour out. Which I would call an odd choice. Yeah, it's an odd choice of color. Like, pink is not a weird or mysterious color, typically. I wouldn't think so. But bright pink light beams forth from the door. The door swings open. We cut to a shot of the kid screaming, but as soon as the light hits him, the sound drops out. I actually like how this moment is done, because we hear him gasp, we hear the, <gasps> and then we hear him start to scream but the moment sound comes out of his voice it just goes yeah i actually liked that choice it sounds really it's a very simple thing to do but it sounds weird and and kind of off-putting and it's it's effective yeah like there are lazier ways or worse ways that they could have shown that moment but they i feel like they they made the best possible choice after that prologue, we meet our two young protagonists. We cut to a school, and we meet two kids who are going to have to work together on a book report. Yep. We meet Lori Napier. A.K.A. What is her nickname? Like, the Iceman? Yeah. <laughs> and Jace Elman. Jace the Face. Because everyone in the school apparently has a nickname. Yeah, which is just great to me. I wish we had gone to a school where everyone had a nickname. What would your nickname have been? Just the dirtiest? The bod. <laughs> like Jesse the Body Ventura. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something, like, more appropriate for you, which means I'm trying to think of a noun, like, the something, and where the word means doesn't have a shirt on. 
<laughs> There's not a word in our language for thing without a shirt on, but if there was, that would have been your nickname. I, I could be the flesh, like in Action League now. <laughs> That's good. I'll allow that. Who, like me, was super strong and super naked. <laughs> that was your aspiration as a child. And yes, I'm recording this episode super naked. <laughs> not really. So, um, what we learn about these two kids is that they both have a reputation for being unpleasant? Well, we learn about their, their reputation in the school. Jason is known as being... We're told that Jason is vain, that if his head was any bigger, he could be in a parade. Or he could be a parade float or something. Trust me, if his head got any bigger, they'd put him in a parade. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, uh, Lori has the exact same reputation, that she's smart and she's know-it-all, and if her head were any bigger, she could be a parade float. This, in this school, everyone has a nickname, and everyone is likely to become a parade floor. <laughs> so yeah, Jason and Lori are having to work together, and they're obviously not getting along, because Jason is a pretty boy athlete who just does not give a shit. But it's important and, to note that, like, right at the top, no, they're not getting along, but they did tell their best friends that they both want to hit that. Yeah, yeah, there's the a casual mention when they're first paired together. Uh, that each one thinks the other is at least somewhat attractive. I think it's kind of cute. Lori's okay. So there's like the hint of a romance here, which I thought was interesting. This is the most overt statement of that potential romance that we get in the entire episode, is each of them saying that, I don't know, I think the other's kind of cute. Yeah, you need that token line to let the audience know that, well, maybe the, if they can make this work, they're, they'll they'll be good for each other. But Which again, very interesting to me because... Not an episode about a relationship in any way. Not, not not a romance here. No, their relationship is still mostly antagonistic, at least for the first half of the episode. We see the two of them at the library. The evil library. The mysterious, spooky library. They're studying. Well, Laurie is studying. She's trying to get their paper written. And Jace is bored as fuck. He is not participating at all. He's basically, like, in timeout. He's just sitting next to her waiting for this whole thing to be over. He pulls out, like, a noise machine, which I liked. I did not like this. He pulls out a little black box with a few buttons on it. When he presses each of the buttons, they make a different kind of, like, sci-fi zapping noise. Yeah. This is, this has to be, like, the lowest form of entertainment. I mean, he's made out to be very dumb. <laughs> like, how is this fun? How is he amusing himself with this thing? We never really see the top of it. Is the implication supposed to be that it's, like, also a video game? He's staring at it pretty intently. And I know it's not a video game, but I also know this show doesn't know how video games work. That is true. But no, I think this thing is just a noise box. Hmm. Lori says, listen, I'm going to basically do all of the work myself. Could you at least go get me some books? So Jace goes down to the basement. He has to put on his big dorky glasses. That he's super embarrassed about. He looks about. around to make sure no one sees him put on the glasses. And of course, when he puts them on, they're like the biggest glasses you've ever seen. Yeah. Like, they, they're they about one size away from being like big, comical, like Mardi Gras party glasses. What's funny is, like, they don't have really thick Coke bottle lenses. Like, if they're trying to imply that he really, really, really needs glasses by giving him big glasses, they would have given him big lenses. But instead, they do it by just giving him, like enormous glasses that don't look good on him. He has Lori's notebook with him, and he gets distracted when the little green bouncy ball from earlier rolls up to his feet. Uh, and we get a moment yeah. where Jace almost discovers the the quiet reading room that sucked up the kid earlier. 
Yeah, he's he's like trying to peer through the bookshelf that hides the reading room. Before we can investigate it further, a random ass librarian pops up and is like, "Everything all right?" And he gets nervous and says, "Yep," and runs off. Yeah, takes the books, leaves Laurie's notebook down in the basement, and comes back upstairs without removing his secret shameful glasses, which immediately get noticed by Laurie. Yeah, she's like, "I didn't know you wore glasses." And Chase has the worst cover for this ever. He pulls them off quickly and just says, uh. I don't. I don't wear glasses. <laughs> oh, my mistake. How did these get there? I fell into them. A little while in the future, we get another sequence of kids in the library. Two more kids who are just, who don't matter. We see an older girl who see her younger sister kind of wandering around aimlessly playing hide and seek. And uh, the older girl also discovers the quiet reading room hidden behind the wall. And just and like friggin' vanishes in the exact same way that little Liz Pete did. Exact same way. Bright pink light pours out from behind the door. She screams. Scream is cut off. And she vanishes. Yeah. So uh, there's a moment between Lori and Jace where they get into a fight. He's offended because she comments on his glasses or something. And it turns into a fight between the two of them. And they end up breaking up the band he decides that he's going to write the paper by himself and she's like give me those books those are mine and he's like they're not your books they belong to the library and i gotta write my book report and she says listen if you don't want to work with me i will write the whole book report by myself for the both of us just give me the books and let's fucking part ways and that's what they do yeah she takes the books but the next day at school she checks her locker and she's horrified to discover that oh no she left the notebook at uh, the library. Or rather, Jace left it in the basement and didn't bring it back upstairs. She meets him at his football practice, uh, like right as it's about to start, and she's like, hey, I need my notebook. And he goes, "Ah, oh, damn, I must have left it at the library. She says, okay, well, go with me and get it. He says, I have football practice. No. She's very pissed off about this, um, which on the one hand, he lost her notebook, but on the other hand, he only had it for like five minutes, and then the two of them were together for an additional like 30 minutes to an hour after that and she never asked for her notebook this is definitely her fault uh but she insists that he go with her back to the library to get it so that he can show her where it is and they agree to meet up that evening after football practice there's which they do there's no reason he should have to accompany her to the library she could find out where those books came from and figure out where the notebook is yeah, this is one of those moments where someone fucked up and you're mad at them, so you decide to punish them for it, despite the fact that you're not their parent. So she's definitely just making him go with her because he doesn't want to go, and she wants to, like, make him be responsible for her books. It feels contrived, but whatever. He's been the bigger dick this entire time. Oh, for like, sure. As she was writing the report, he was not participating at all. He got into a fight with her. He tried to take the books away from her. He was being the bigger dick, and this is definitely her moment of retaliation. By the way, that's, go, that's my school nickname, the bigger dick. <laughs> if his dick were any bigger, it would be in a parade. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dumbest joke we've ever made. Uh, they meet up that night at the library, and come to find out it is closed. Why didn't you check the closing time? Hey, you said 7 o'clock, not me. I'm gonna flunk. At 7 o'clock, which seems a little bit early, but... Anyway, they look around for another way to get in. Jace tries to open one... Jace tries to open the windows. He tries and tries, can't seem to get them, but then one window on the second floor just mysteriously opens by itself, and they sneak in. I mean, we should make a note. He's doing something pretty impressive here. He's breaking into the second floor window of this ancient building. 
Yeah, I respect that. Yeah. It seems like something you and I would have done back in our, our glory days. Oh, hell yeah. I think I've literally done that. There's a really interesting moment here. You know, I've referenced the relationship between the two of them. They're fighting constantly, and she says, I don't want you to break in. Like, we'll figure something else out. And he's like, I don't want to be responsible for the one and only time you ever flown and he kind of winks at her and she kind of like blushes so there's like a hint of them flirting yeah i i'll give them credit for that i'm glad they didn't take the the romance too far they kept it believable so he goes into the second floor window uh, which was friggin opened by a ghost right like we can oh yeah i mean very obviously if i was trying to get into a place and i couldn't and then a window opened its goddamn self I would not go into that window. Well, they've got to get this notebook back. I Actually, they're desperate. I've been playing, um, do you remember the game Amnesia, The Dark Descent? No, I don't. You're in a castle, and your job is just to wander around. Then, occasionally, monsters start to show up, and you can't fucking fight them. You have to just run and hide until they, like, lose your scent. You're absolutely powerless. It's one of the scariest games ever. I will be walking down a hall in this game... And all of a sudden there will be a gust of wind and a door will blow open on its own? Fuck me. Those aren't even real doors. Like, I can't even send my fake body through a fake door for fear of dying from a fake monster. And this kid's like, an ancient library window just opened itself, going right on through it. This episode must have traumatized you. I worked at the library as a high schooler. I had like a three-week job where all I did was reorganize the basement. It was unspoken, but neither myself nor the other high school library volunteer workers would do that job alone. If one of us called in sick one day, then the other was like, I guess I'm just fucking doing something else. This kid is crazy. I'm glad you bring up the fact that you used to work at a... A semi-creepy library. I wonder if this if this episode hit home for you in a way that it didn't for me. Uh, I would say it probably did. Anyway, when Jace and Lori enter the library, they immediately realize that something is amiss. Yeah, she tries to put her bag down on a fax machine or something, and the table that it's normally on just isn't there. Yeah, the fax machine is gone, all the computers are gone, all of the electronic equipment is gone, even the fire alarms are gone. Yep. Why'd you do that? What happened to the copy machine? It used to be right there. Yeah. I thought it was funny that, like, they look around and they're like, where are all the computers? Like, that's a totally normal thing. When in the last episode, Frank acted like computers were for aliens. The two of them make their way to the basement where he left the notebook. They go down to the basement, and on their way there, they actually find, like, a kerosene lamp. And when they get down to the basement, uh, Lori asks Jay, she's like, where'd you leave my notebook? And he says, over there, I think. But everything's different. And there's, like, creepy music playing. She says, what do you mean everything's different? And he points out that, well, there was a shelf covering this door, and I was looking at it right when I, le- right when I left your book. Only the shelf isn't there. So the whole reason that they find it is because of the fact that the rooms have changed. You know, things, things aren't there anymore. They're looking around the room. They find a calendar dated 1910, which seems kind of weird. And it's next to this old mysterious door labeled The Quiet Reading Room. And they unlock the door with a handy key nearby. And we actually get my favorite scene in the entire episode when they discover what's behind the door. They open the door uh, to a spooky-ass room. Very spooky. Cobwebs everywhere. They round the corner and they find an enormous table. And sitting at the table are about a dozen kids. All from 
bygone era. Yeah, all dressed in, like, weird, period-appropriate clothing from, like, the early 20th century all the way up to the present, and they're all covered in dust and cobwebs. Yeah, they're like little Oliver Twist kids, and it's like a room full of frozen ghosts. They've all got, like, really pale faces with no, like, they're all sepia tone. Yeah. Except for the two kids that disappeared most recently. Yeah, who still have some, like, blood in their veins, but they're starting to turn pale and they're covered in spider webs. Our description does not make it sound very scary, but it is it is a genuinely eerie scene to see all of these kids out of time, covered in dust and soot, having been locked away for a hundred years. Yeah, well, and there's no detail to the room. The room is totally pitch black except for the table they're sitting at. And so this is sort of like the dream sequence in the tale of the killer clown or the not the killer clown the tale of the crimson the tale clown. Of killer clown <laughs> this is sort of like the dream sequence in the tale of the crimson clown where you have this like horrifying thing just in a black void like there's nothing else around except this table full of very very dead looking ghost children and it works yeah the two most recent victims of the door the young kids from earlier in the episode turn and look at our two young protagonists, and they try to scream, but no sound comes out. However, our two young protagonists both scream, and we get a big fat scream take. Yep. Zooming in on the mouths and everything. And it's at that moment that we cut to commercial. Presenting the one and only fruit bearing gummy bears. Made with the goodness of real fruit juice, they're called amazing fruit. Amazing fruit is so fruity you can hardly bear it. Tropical flavors too. So when we come back from our commercial break, the kids run the fuck out of that room, um, and you would think that they're safe after they escape. But no, then we get probably the next scariest image, right? Yeah, as soon as they run out of the room, another door opens, and they see who they believe to be the librarian from earlier in the episode. Yeah, the one that Jace bumped into in the basement. That's not Mrs. Hurley. No, no. This is a ghastly old woman with pink glasses who strolls out from the void with, like, fog machines billowing behind her. And the music in this scene is just, like, Really good. Yeah, the music... I'm going to drop some of it in. The music does a lot of the heavy lifting in this episode, for reasons that will soon become apparent. And the school marm. She does. She's pretty terrifying. This librarian strolls up and says, No talking in the library. Jace tries to confront her and says, like, Who are you? What's going on? And as he's talking, the librarian produces an enormous box full of pink light. Yep, the same pink light that we saw when baby Danny Tamborelli 
got ghosted. She opens it up, and as soon as the light hits Jace, his voice disappears. We get a chase sequence between she and Laurie, and uh, Laurie is running around the upstairs of the library. She tries to go out a window. She tries to hide. Nothing works. This just slow-moving, creepy-ass woman in a long black dress is just stalking her down the hall. This is an interesting scene because it's one of the longest stretches of action we've seen in the show that doesn't have any dialogue. Yeah. Because Jace can't speak. The librarian is not speaking. Lori is staying quiet so as to avoid her. So it's all just told through, like, camera angles and the music swelling and being very ominous. It's it's an interesting thing to see the show attempt this sort of wordless storytelling. But at the same time, it feels a little bit long. Uh, at one point, the old lady is about to catch Laurie and Jace distracts her by playing a hand crank phonograph. She chases after him and she sucks up the sound of the Victrola, corners him, steals his voice, and we just get a lot of back and forth between the two of them. Eventually, Laurie finds the two of them. She tries to save Jace. Her voice is stolen and the librarian says that she's about to take the two kids away to the quiet reading room for a long time. And they'll grow to enjoy it just like all the others. This is where Jace has a bright idea. One of the records that he had from when he'd been hand cranking the Victrola he smashes it on the ground and the loud noise seems to upset the lady uh, he smashes like all of the, re the vinyl records that he can get his hands on the old woman drops the box on the ground and Laurie tries to grab it but she can't Jace pulls out his convenient plot device his Chekhov's gun the little noise-making box from earlier in the episode. Chekhov's noise-making box yeah. <laughs> and he points it at the little old librarian and he zaps her Zaps are good. And she's like writhing in pain as he's just blasting her with obnoxious sci-fi siren noises. And Jace and Lori play a game of Pass the Potato where they just toss this noisemaker back to one another and take turns zapping the woman. The librarian does not do a great job of selling that she's in agony here. She's just like, no, stop that. No, Noah is in the library. Ah, stop. Yeah, her writhing is really low energy. Yeah. <laughs> After a few seconds of this... We see she eventually, like, succumbs to it. The box opens, and all the pink mystical energy inside bursts forth. And we see, through the power of some amazing special effects, uh, the souls of all the kids she's captured are released. It's one of those classic 90s special effects where, like, souls are released from something and what you see are a bunch of, like, floating disembodied heads in mist that is really bad. Yeah. Like, something, like, if you beat one of the early Mortal Kombat games, this is what happens when you kill Shang Tsung. Yeah. Uh, so the box is destroyed, it falls to the ground and shatters, the old woman disappears, and the kids get their voice back. I'm going to say, I said this last time, but I'm, but I'm going to say it again. I want it so badly for the villain of this episode to explode. <laughs> I completely agree. There really needs to be more exploding in Are You Afraid of the Dark Villains. She doesn't explode, but That's we like, do get the next pause. best thing. When was the last time a villain exploded on this show? I know when the hatching of the villain exploded. Yeah, you referenced that last time, but like, is that the only precedent we have for characters exploding? Well, I thought the virus was going to explode because you saw his brain pulsating. I thought it was going to burst into, like, a pile of goo. That definitely would have been a fair assumption. Did Mr. Noise explode? No, he just vanished when he got hit by the charge shot. Yeah. All I'm saying is that if a villain can explode, I say explode that villain. 
That's an awkward way yeah. of phrasing that, but I stand by it. That's a that's a fair rule to make. Uh, the old woman just sort of like vanishes, and the kids get their voices back. And as soon as they both say, "Hey, my voice is back," yeah, me too. A night security guard, a night watchman, shows up, and uh, he's like this old guy. I cannot help but imagine him with an Irish accent, even though I know he didn't have one. But just picture like an old security guard guy being like, "What are you kids doing here at this time of night?" He finds the kids, and at the kids' feet is a pile of ash with a pair of old-timey glasses sitting on top. He handles this surprisingly well. Yeah, he doesn't ask any qu- He knows not to ask any questions about this. He knows that's a road he doesn't want to go down. <laughs> the kids tell the, the security guard, we know where the missing kids are. And they take him to the quiet reading room, and they go in, and the two little kids from earlier in the episode both emerge unscathed. They have their voices back, good as new. The other kids... <laughs> the Dickensian ghosts. Not not so lucky. Nope. Uh, we hear them laughing and skipping, like their voices, and Laurie and Jace kind of like look around the room as though the sounds are moving around them as they dissipate. And uh, and Jace says, whoever they were, I, I don't know who they were, but whoever they were, I think they're finally free to go to hell. To go- <laughs> we're paraphrasing, but... Also, I wanted to see the skeletons of these kids at the table, but no luck. <laughs> like, such a missed opportunity to have, like, the old security guard open the door and two live kids run out, freaked the fuck out, and there's just a bunch of skeletons in little hats. <laughs> but no, we get the denouement to this episode. Lori and Jace decide they're going to work on their report together, and she puts his arm around him as they stroll out of the library and fast friends uh, and then as they're leaving we get one last creepy shot the camera pans up to a portrait of the creepy librarian hanging on the wall yeah and it says that she was the librarian from 18 she was the head librarian from 1895 to 1910 when they canned her or i guess when that she wraps died. up the story we cut back to she must have died in 1910 man she was only head librarian for 10 years and the stress just killed her I, I, the ending definitely leaves a lot open to interpretation did she die was she fired who knows i kind of like that we don't know we come back to the Midnight Society, and we, we get sort of an unenthusiastic ending. Everyone says, hey, great story, good job. Gary dumps the water bucket on the fire, and this is when the joke comes in, after they're all getting ready to leave. Yeah, Kiki says, wait. Speaking of libraries, I have some books I have to return. Does anyone want to keep me company? And of course, all the other members of the Midnight Society shit their pants and run away, and no one wants to go to the library because they're too spookified. Kiki does something funny here. She She's like, guys? guys and when they walk off like she's by herself and she just shakes her head like oh these silly kids and she laughs to herself and goes yes like she got them like she really really got them i didn't even notice that that's so lame it's such a strange ending like it's an ending we've seen a million times on the show now where it's like so who wants to play some video games who wants to play video games or who wants to you know read this spooky book and everyone's like oh not me that I've learned to be scared of that thing. Their lives have been totally changed by this one storytelling. But after that, we of course get the Rockin' Awesome theme song. Rockin' Awesome theme song. And that's the tale of The Quiet Librarian. Uh, Dykus, you had some words for this one after after we watched it. Uh, yes, I actually... I thought about this for a while, and I decided the only way I could express my feelings for this episode was in the form of a haiku. 
<clears throat> a first for our show. It go. It reads something like this. Episode sucked butt. Libraries are not scary. Wall-E, this was not. Because of the... The Wall-E, to clarify the Wall-E thing, Wall-E also has a long stretch of action with no dialogue. And that's what I thought of when I saw the chase sequence in this episode. Like I said, they tried to do a long sequence with no... with minimal talking. And it just didn't work for me. This is definitely the opposite of Wall-E, because, like, the only parts of this that are interesting are the scenes where the characters can talk. I can see what they were going for in this episode. You know, libraries, like you were saying, a library can be a creepy place because it's old and dusty and, like, cavernous. But this episode did not succeed in making me afraid of the library. Instead, this episode just felt a a bit long and drawn out. And, I don't know, tell me what you thought of this one. Did it work? Was it more effective for you? You know, um, I'd already seen this episode pretty recently. This was one of the episodes that I watched when my niece and I watched Are You Afraid of the Dark more than a year and a half ago uh, in my very short-lived like uh, sprint through a, a an anthology collection that ended up inspiring our podcast. Um, so I'd already seen this one recently, and I'd watched it with a kid, and... I didn't hate it as much as you did, but watching it again for our show, what struck me was the acting is really bad, specifically yeah. on the part of Jace. Um, and that, yeah, it's really, really long. There are moments of this episode that are freaky as fuck. The kids in the reading room, totally scary. The old woman first emerging with the box, totally scary. Every time she rounds a corner and just slowly stalks towards them from a distance, totally scary. Um, but the rest of the conflict is is kind of strange because it's very, very fast-paced. Like, it's a lot of running, but with no sound at all. And it's not like it's choreographed in any interesting way. It's basically just a bunch of kids running fast, being chased by this slow-moving woman, and then a weird scene where they're like, breaking stuff and making a lot of noise the conflict at the end didn't really work but i actually thought that a lot of the rest of it was pretty scary i mean you're right it has its moments but like this episode reminded me a bit of tale of the pinball wizard oh okay tell where, go on where it felt like they got the opportunity to shoot an episode in a very specific location like a mall or a library and they reverse engineered the story based on that it's like, okay, what can we do in a library? Well, librarians are creepy. They're old and, you know, domineering. And, you know, what if we had a really scary librarian who kept kids quiet forever? I definitely think it probably started with that concept, right? They were like, oh, libraries are creepy. What can we do in a library? Like, what do you think of when you think of a library? Well, you think of, like, being shushed by the librarian. What if a librarian stole your voice? Like, yeah, I think that's where it came from. Um... But that's not a negative to me. Like, that's a great idea. The how many how many nightmares have you had where you're being pursued by someone and you can't scream for help? Occasionally. Yeah, me too. Like throughout my entire life, every now and then, like once every you know, as a kid, it was very frequently. But as an adult, like once every maybe like you know three to five years, I have a very scary dream where I just can't scream. So this was not a bad concept. It just wasn't the best execution we could have had. I don't know. I, I'm 
I really question whether the concept was scary enough. A librarian, really? Like a little old lady? Maybe if she had like an axe or something, but her her box of pink mystery magic. Just, I need more than that. I need more. <laughs> but Eli, I guess now is as good a time as any to ask the question. Yeah? You scared of this? Yes. Fuck you. Fuck you. Justify your answer. <laughs> How can you say that? How can you say fuck you? <laughs> Listen here, Dykus. I know that the plot of this episode is not your favorite. I know that the acting is bad. I know that the main conflict is not great. But it still has a scary-ass librarian. It still has kids going into the library at night and having to go down to the basement of the library. And there being ghosts in the basement of the library. And you can't scream. Like, that old woman is legitimately scary looking. If that if if you brought that portrait of her to my house and hung it up, I would fucking move. That's fair. The portrait is like ten feet tall, and it's really, uh, it's really scary looking. The shot of the woman walking towards them, carrying the weird box, and she is right in front of the portrait of herself, and there are two of her, is super scary because there are two of her. Like I didn't even notice that. I know that this isn't a good episode overall. But the concept is scary, and the moments that are scary are executed well. Like, it is a le- it has, this episode has legitimately scary moments, regardless of the fact that it's bad. I'm going to have to go the opposite way and say, no, I was not scared of this. For all the reasons I've already mentioned, didn't, I don't think the concept is super scary. It had a few uh, outstanding moments, but overall, this is, I think, the weakest episode we've had in a long time. Uh, your mileage may vary... Obviously, Eli felt differently than I did, so check this one out and judge for yourself. I think it's scary. You don't. You're wrong. Let's move on. What do we have to look forward to next week? Next week we have The Tale of the Water Demons. Which is going to be yet another Ron Oliver joint. Pretty excited about that. I'm excited about this episode. I think I know what the monster is going to be. I think I know what the villain of this is going to be. And I'm if it, if it is where I think it is, then we're in for a good time. Between now and then, of course, you can find us all over the internet. But mainly on Facebook. That's right, facebook.com slash you scared of this, twitter.com slash you scared of this, soundcloud.com slash you scared of this, where you can hear all of our previous episodes. And you can find us on iTunes, where we encourage you to leave a rating and review. Yeah, let us know what you like or what you don't like. Let us know who your favorite director is, Ron Oliver. Let us know, are libraries scary or is Eli being stupid? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Till then, I hereby declare this episode of You Scared of This closed. <laughs>